Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and our second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. As with our first season, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Note that the views and opinions expressed here are those of the participants as individuals and not intended to reflect the policy or position of their companies or other affiliations they may have. This next episode took place on a bright morning in Hong Kong in the Admiralty section of the city. I made landfall in Asia for the first time in Hong Kong. (laughs) And I remember um, circling uh, Hong Kong Harbor and coming in low of a Kai Tak airport and seeing the neon lights on the buildings in Hong Kong for, for real and having goose pimples and saying to myself, wow, I've made it to Asia. Um, and there was something in me that said, this is where I really want to be. And I never let go of that ambition to live and work here. That's Stuart Spencer talking about his first visit to Hong Kong, the gateway to Asia. He fell in love with this part of the world and eventually became CEO Asia-Pacific for the global insurer Zurich Insurance Company Limited, responsible for over a $3 billion P&L, covering nine countries and 6,000 employees in the Asia-Pacific. During his time here, he developed strong views about what's needed in order for China and the West to promote mutual stability. Even though the U.S. has sort of tried to pivot towards Asia, I don't see how the U.S. pivot has improved Sino-American relations. I think there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding. I think the Americans just need to understand that China wants to be respected. It doesn't necessarily want global hegemony. It's not necessarily looking to rival the United States politically and trump the United States at the Security Council. Stewart is clear-eyed, though, about China's challenges, especially its effort to keep a lid on the demand for participation in global media, especially social media, and the growing appetite for free speech. The home run, okay, the, the unequivocal, unassailable, undeniable home run is finding the convergence between technolo- technological innovation and political freedom. That will unleash this dragon in China that is today significantly still repressed. In this podcast, we talk of these topics and more, including huge opportunities for the insurance business in mainland China, the impact of Hong Kong's significant drop in GDP since the 90s, urban sprawl across Asia, the communist government's fixation on social harmony, why that's important and what threatens it, concerns about China's aging population and pollution, and much more. So let's get started. So with me today is Stuart Spencer, and we're talking in Hong Kong. Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast into this Asia in the West series. Thank you, Susan. Great to be here. So let's start at the beginning. When, When we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West. What, what does that bring to mind? What does that mean? So what, what immediately dawned on me was the emerging rivalry or the intensification of the rivalry between China and the United States. Ah. Um, and as China um, continues to define a more prolific and substantial role in world affairs beyond economic affairs, um, and how the United States is grappling with this new reality of a much more 
dynamic, engaged, engaging China, a China that has seduced many parts of the emerging world with you know, investment, infrastructure, aid, using soft diplomacy. And the Americans really not truly understanding what China's motivations are. And um, even though the U.S. has sort of tried to pivot towards Asia, I don't see how the U.S. pivot has improved Sino-American relations. I think there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding. I think the Americans just need to understand that China wants to be respected. It doesn't necessarily want global hegemony. It's not necessarily looking to rival the United States politically and trump the United States at the Security Council. It just wants to be respected as a, as a material, meaningful force, hopefully for good in this world, that will um, provide you know, capital, ideas, investment, um, and hopefully stability in the Asia-Pacific region, which we all want. Everything hinges on a strong China and a, and a stable China. Isn't it interesting that your, your, your description of what they want to be, at least in, in your estimation, sounds an awful lot like what the U.S. wanted to be some time ago in its history, in its very young history. It wanted sure. to be respected. It wanted sure. to be taken seriously. Sure. So it makes sense to me. When did you come to this part of the world? For the- I made my first visit in 1989 um, to Hong Kong. I made landfall in Asia for the first time in Hong Kong. <laughs> and I remember... Um, circling uh, Hong Kong Harbor and coming in low over Kai Tak Airport and seeing the neon lights on the buildings in Hong Kong for, for real and having goose pimples and saying to myself, wow, I've made it to Asia. Um, and there was something in me that said, this is where I really want to be. And I never let go of that ambition to live and work here. Uh, and then uh, in 2004, 15 years later, I came out here uh, with AIG, the, the global insurer, to, to lead a business in Southeast Asia. So my dream came true uh, after a lot of perseverance and focus and being very clear that that was my ambition, to get to Asia. And fortunately, I worked for a company that you know, was founded in Asia and had tremendous business apparatus in Asia, and so there were a lot of opportunities for people like me. So when you came, yep. that was some time ago now, uh, there was a. How has the conversation that you talked about in the beginning? How has that shifted mm. from the time that you came here? What's different now, besides the turnover? The- I, I think, I think then. I mean, certainly to go back to sort of the Sino-U.S. relations, China was just considered the factory of the world, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just going to make stuff, and hopefully they'll be happy making stuff. And their ambition will be, you know, their ambition won't go beyond that. They'll they just want, make more of it. They'll just make more stuff and mm-hmm. they're not going to intrude on American hegemony and, and nibble away at American political um, and military primacy in the world. And I think the Americans didn't realize they're making stuff, generating tremendous amounts of foreign currency reserves in the process, bankrolling the United States through billions if not trillions of dollars of American debt and becoming a major economic and military power in the process. And I think with the advent of Xi Jinping, who is cracking down on corruption, ostentation, who is trying to create the, the, the China dream and fortify the, the, the strength uh, and the institutionalization of the, of the Communist Party at the same time, the U.S. is now dealing with a very focused and formidable, hopefully, ally in China. So I'm hoping the incoming administration will engage China intelligently respect China appropriately, and find 
avenues for sustainable mutual cooperation that are going to be in the best interests of Americans and Chinese and promote stability, again, that we all want in Asia so that we can all go about our business, not worrying about, you know, um, volatility politically uh, or, or security. I think your description of this is so so uh, appropriate. In fact, I've been talking with people about how the com- how this century needs to be the collaborative century. Mm. Technology has made it pretty impossible for people to be to isolate themselves. And it, it, what you what you just described was that kind of collaborative um, powerful result that comes when people know how to deal with each other. How accurate do you think, not so much even the, the, the senior political uh, leadership of China, but the man on the street, how, do, what is the Chinese understanding of the West? Is it accurate? Do they know what Westerners I'm, are? I'm sure it's founded on a vast array of mis- misconceptions and misperceptions. I think that the ensuing um, crackdown in China on social media and the parameters that are being imposed by the by the Communist Party on what people can say, what they can access, when they can access it, um, and the abs- you know the notable absence of some of the most uh, prolific social media organizations in the world from China, mm-hmm. um, lead me to believe that whatever information people in China are able to get their hands on um, is either going to be fundamentally filtered or skewed, um, and I doubt that Ch- China will be able to really harness the collective collaborative energy of of its incredible 1.3 billion population until and unless we see the marriage of of economic liberalization and politi- and political participation i think so long as there is a, a a a an undercurrent of political repression it will stifle innovation it will stifle creativity and it will minimize the likelihood that Chinese will have a clear and accurate understanding and perception of the West. So let's look at it the other way around. The West can get their hands on most information anywhere, but how well do we understand or even care to what's happening in Asia, specifically China? Great question. I think I think my perception is that America is tilting towards a more sort of America first isolationist approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and sees China and Asia as a bunch of people who make a lot of stuff, dump it in the U.S. at really low prices, um, and create sustainable trade imbalances that are unfair and unjust, <laughs> and we're all getting hurt in the process. Uh, I don't think there has been <clears throat> sufficient intellectual appreciation of, of the region, its people, its culture, its history, um, its realities, beyond the, a lot of the uh, trade-driven political hyperbole that we've been exposed to in the last 12 months which is unfortunate. The issue really is, how do we, and that's more of an American issue, I think in Europe there may be a better appreciation. I, I, I see many more Europeans traveling. I think, I don't know the statistics, but proportionally I think more Europeans have had exposure to Asia than Americans just in terms of visits, uh, are proportional on an annual basis. So I think the Europeans have less populist push back on Asia than the Americans do. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Europeans look at Asia as much as a, as a um, um, trade, trade war as the Americans do, as a lot of... Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there's probably a greater appreciation for Asian culture emanating from Europe than there is in the United States. The, 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 the challenge is, how do you enable Americans to really get the true story and to get the wow 
you know, what I experienced, this wow factor, this incredible part of the world with these incredible people, with incredible culture and history, to, to go beyond, you know, the, um, the stigmas or the labeling that, that, that happens to better appreciate the people here. I know exactly what you, what you mean by that, because decades ago, I lived in San Francisco, and I came to Asia for the first time. It really was decades ago. And I remember just thinking, wow, how could I not have known about this to yeah. this extent? This is so amazing. This is a story that, how come we don't all know this? And the pictures in my mind had been so inaccurate mm. that, um, I mean, that's one of the purposes of this conversation. I'm hoping that we can have more people just share in listening to the views of a number of people from both sides of this world. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you've got, look, I think still the residual after effects of World War II uh, impacting perceptions. You, the, you know, the Japanese being former adversaries, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Chinese being these massive communists who, you know, w- with a little red book and riding bicycles in those pajamas, in those in those sort of tr- in those trouser suits. You've got you've got the um, the North Korean autocracy, totalitarian regime who's constantly trying to get attention. Uh, through you know through threatening you know military incursion um, you you have the legacy of the Vietnam War, which I think became synonymous with that 's Asia for uh, many mm-hmm. Americans. I think you have you know lingering memories of the Cambodian killing fields, um, the um, dictatorship in, in in the Philippines on the marcos and and and, and the and the the war against the communists in in Indonesia and all that that, that happened there 's all this turbulence. And India, only in the last 20 plus years, really liberalizing economically and moving away from what was very much a state-led, very fragmented economy. Um, and so I think, I, think the, I think the West has this very antiquated snapshot um, of these lingering perceptions that were very much prominent in the news for a long, long time that hasn't been updated, that hasn't been refreshed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Now, you mentioned when we talked about the uh, perceptions of Chinese, uh, specifically Asians, but I think you were talking specifically about Chinese, and how the need for an accurate understanding is important partially because that's where innovation comes from, from having it. So, but right Mm. now, the Chinese are much more innovative than the West gives them credit for, it seems Mm. to me. There's Mm. an awful lot of cool stuff coming out of Asia, especially China. So it sounds like that will unleash even more. Is, is your view that, because I think there are a lot of Westerners that think, well, as far as innovation is concerned, we've got it. Yeah. And that's not really accurate. Well, I think there was a, <clears throat> this, this kind of misperception or this canard that you know, nothing gets innovated in Asia. They just take what's innovated in the West and they just adapt copy. it. Mm-hmm. They, they copy, they adapt it. Um, and then they kind of make it their own. Nothing original ever emanates from here. That's ridiculous, and that is outdated. Um, but I would say what's curious to me, this, this contradiction, I see so much innovation, as you've mentioned, emanating from China in the, in the social media space. Yes. Yet at the same time, there are so many restrictions placed on the freedom of social media in China. So I'm having a hard time sort of reconciling you know, how, how it all kind of comes out in the wash. Because, you know, the Chinese are 
adamant about controlling what is accessible on social media. Yet at the same time, whether it's WeChat or, or, or Alipay or anything else, the, the technology is now completely reshaped life in China. So no matter how rich or how poor, you now have access to tools that create more of an egalitarian society in a way. It's true. So I don't know how that's, I don't know how that's all going to end up. I hope it doesn't end up in tears because the, the continuing pressure that is going to be imposed on the Communist Party to keep a lid on all of this innovation and all this fundamental human curiosity across hundreds of millions of people. You can't keep the lid yeah, on it. How, it's just not, I don't see it as being sustainable. And so if it isn't sustainable, what are the triggers going to be that's going to unhinge that, that repression? And, and what will that look like? And what's it going to look like? Yeah. I mean, and we, we saw what happened in 1989, and we saw how deliberate the Chinese were to, to squash any kind of you know, uprising or, or repression. We see what's happening in Tibet. We see what's happening in Xinjiang province. We see what's happening here in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You know, the incursions on civil rights in Hong Kong and the more heavy-handed approach to defining policy and social order in Hong Kong that's coming out of the mainland is unprecedented. And you may have heard about those legislators who who didn't who take, didn't the, take oath the oath appropriately. Way. You've heard about you know book bookshop owners who disappear and then rematerialize. And, you know you've heard about um, changes to some of the curricula in the schools that are more focused on the motherland, etc. And how local Hong Kong Chinese are pushing back. Um, and so what's happening now in Hong Kong is you have this increasingly polarized society and a much more politicized society than 12 years ago. Um, and you've got now an emerging independence movement, which that's new. I mean, there was one, certainly the movement for, um, for universal suffrage, which is meant to take place in 2017 as part of the basic law. Mm-hmm. So we get to vote for our chief executive. That obviously has been modified, and there are a lot of people who are upset about that. You've got the camp who's don't mess with Beijing because our economic livelihood is fundamentally predicated on Beijing being happy with how we're behaving. You have a group that says, we don't want anything to do with those people. In fact, Hong Kong identity is radically different than that of the mainland. And what are those mainlanders thinking? We're, we're, we, we speak Cantonese. We have a different history. We have different values. We have a different... It's a different society. So we're not even really part of that. And then you have people who are in the middle say, look, let's be realistic. You know, we, we know we're all Chinese here. We, you know, we're on the Chinese mainland. And we don't want to, um, we don't want to provoke you know, mom and dad. So let's just be well-behaved and let's mind our own business. And it would be nice if we could elect our own leadership. But let's remember that even under UK colonial rule, London would send you know, a new colonial, you know, governor to Hong Kong and he or she would sail in the Royal Yacht Britannia in Hong Kong Harbor. <laughs> That's true. And we didn't have any choice over who it was. And so, and the Chinese recognized that. They said, listen, for 140 something years, you, you, you had no choice. London made that choice where, in fact, by allowing you through this the sort of plebiscite of 1600 or so decision makers, we're actually giving you more choice than you ever had under UK colonial rule. So what's the problem? So Hong Kong just thinks, uh, the Chinese just think that we're troublemakers. You know, that we are just ungrateful for all the, you know, the economic, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, difference that China has made to Hong Kong. And if it weren't for mainland China, we would be an inconsequential little, little city-state. And if you look at the contribution to GDP that Hong Kong made in 1997 versus today, it has diminished dramatically. It is, it, it, it's not that it's in now inconsequential. It's certainly consequential, but it is a fraction of what it used to be. But what Hong Kong needs to do is it needs to find the right balance, preserve what is distinct in its identity, preserve the rule of law, preserve the free port, preserve the, the apparatus of what makes Hong Kong great, what has always made Hong Kong great beyond just a harbor. But it's the, it's the intellectual capital, the, the, the hardworking people, and the freedoms that people have enjoyed here um, in a very sort of hands-off government to economic liberalization, economic freedom, that have allowed people to just reach their full potential without being constrained by, by regulation and a heavy-handed government. So the jury's really still out on how this it is, is going to end. It is, and most people think it's not going to end well. You know, most people in the business community are becoming increasingly concerned about the long term here and whether this is the right place to be. I don't think that there is a strong preference to go to Shanghai because in Shanghai you don't enjoy the same freedoms um, and and governance that you enjoy in Hong Kong. So then the, the alternative becomes potentially a Singapore. Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen, you know, a certain degree of an exodus towards Singapore. And people aren't necessarily happier there. It's just a perception that it's, a, it's, it's out of the crosshairs, if you will, of mainland China. So what about you, Stuart? You've been here and have every opportunity to live anywhere in the world, and yet you seem totally committed <clears throat> to remaining in Asia. Um, when you look at that future, mm. is Hong Kong still your base in a future way? It, it is for the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that in my industry, in the insurance industry, uh, in the primary insurance industry, life or general insurance, Hong Kong is the best place to be situated geographically um, and strategically uh, to manage an, a regional Asia business. Uh, your midpoint um, you know, you, you're sit- situated, you know, three hours from Beijing, three hours from Tokyo, two hours from Bangkok, four and a half hours from Jakarta. Yeah, perfectly so central. You're, you're perfectly, you're perfectly geographically situated. We have the economic freedoms that I, uh, I, I talked about, but fundamentally, our industry <clears throat> can do more good to improve living standards and the quality of life and provide access to financial services in Asia than any other part of the world, and that will be the case for the next 30 to 50 years. So the penetration gap of insurance, for whether it's mortality, morbidity, or property, is gigantic. So if you want to insure people and their stuff, there's no bigger gap to close than the gap to close in Asia. And if you're committed to doing good, if, if you see insurance as a social force and vehicle, for improving the quality of life for the people in the country where you do business, then, the, then there's no other place in the world to be. Europe, the United States, highly regulated, stagnated, you know, no, little to no growth. It's just shifting share in the, in, in the pie. The pie is not getting any larger. But Whereas here it's it, exponential. It's just, you know, the pie just, you wake up the following morning, the pie is bigger than it was the day before. That's kind of exciting. And, and it's exciting. And, and we, you know, there are a lot of expatriates who work in Asia Pacific, and one of our big obligations is to really, is to really develop and build a sustainable cadre of local leaders who take over for us once we're gone. So that, that would be one of my questions when we talk about innovations specifically, that in the past, 
people would often say that the innovation that was coming about in this part of the world was a result of the expats who came in mm. with all their expertise and then they shared <clears> that. And then it sort of shifted to, well, Asians are educating a lot of their kids in the West, they, they come back and it's from them having mm. garnered this kind of independent thinking that they push innovation. But I'm getting the sense that more and more of it is tending to be homegrown and I think that's what you're pointing to when you say we can help make that happen and that will make it all stronger. Entirely agree. I, I think there is a, um, a greater propensity to localize and sort of tropicalize ideas that are coming from the West and, and, and inject you know, a lot more local flavor and local nuances to make them resonate more with local people um, now than when I first arrived, you know, 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I felt like I was teaching and students were just sort of listening. Now I feel like um, they are coming to the table with better ways of doing um, that resonate better locally than what I had originally thought, <clears throat> which is great. How interesting, because in a way, <clears throat> it's almost as if there's a parallel here to the past when... Um, the, the, the Asians, specifically Chinese, would copy material goods and then improve on them and, mm. and, and ship them back. Now you're talking about ideas that come, that become the germ of something that they can then make important or make more relevant to this local area, and uh, everybody wins. It sounds like that's... You know, when I first came, it, it, China, again, we go back to what we discussed in the beginning of the conversation, was at the factory, right? And a lot of the stuff the factory was making was, was counterfeit. Right. So it was all, if you wanted something copied, you go to China. You want a, you want a wedding dress copy, you go to Shenzhen. You want a, a Rolex Oyster Perpetual, you go to the, the market in Shanghai. You want a Louis Vuitton bag, you just go across the border to Shenzhen. That is so old hat now. It's almost <laughs> pathetic that, that, that at that time, that's what we thought the Chinese were capable of right. doing. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, not only has there been a crackdown on the whole counterfeit industry, but people in their 20s and 30s don't want anything to do with that. That's not where they're focused. No, yeah. I mean, that's, it's almost ridiculous mm -hmm. that that's what it used to be. Now it's, it's, it's technology-driven. And so the, the real, the home run, okay, the, the unequivocal, unassailable, undeniable home run is finding the convergence between technolo technological innovation and political freedom. That will unleash this dragon in China that is today significantly still repressed, which is sub-optimizing the degree to which the, the homegrown now technological innovation can, can really flourish. flourish and be pervasive. That is the ticket. But I, I, it's not a question, Susan, it's not a question of, in my opinion, if. It's, it's just a question of when. And the issue is when it happens, what is it going to look like? And hopefully it is a it is a peaceful, you know, transition. It is a peaceful, you know, step in in, in China's development as a nation. So if you had to, if you were a betting man, mm. so we've now decided it's not when, it's if. When do you think this could happen? Is this ten years from now? Is <clears throat> this less than that? Is less this... than ten years from now. It's huge. I, I, I just think it's it, it, it's, it's like a pot of water boiling with the lid on it, and the lid's going to just, it's going to get popped off. The water's boiling. I can see the water boiling right now. Those bubbles are bubbling. So the, the question is, does it cook something wonderful or does it burn you? 
one can only hope that um, that freedom will prevail. But let us please not underestimate the vigilance of the Communist Party in China. It is their, you know, their raison d'etre is is the party, the party apparatus, the party loyalty system, the cadres, which requires the control. And eighty-five million members in China, so it is a controlling vehicle that it is omnipresent and repressive um, and and scary. And I don't know how how it's how that's all going to um, end up. Now you have, for example, in Burma, Myanmar. A situation where you had very repressive generals overseeing um, a a nation state that was essentially a pariah for many for many decades, and then the generals, quite frankly, made the strategic determination that that it was not sustainable. That was really old hat. They were really missing the boat. There were tremendous gains to be made by putting their you know totalitarian ways behind them. And open the door to economic liberalization, foreign direct investment, you know, more freedom of expression, and so forth. And you know, Burma today, although yes, there's suppression of some of their Muslim minorities, Burma today is an example of actually a pragmatic response to change by a totalitarian apparatus that basically said, you know what, let's just pack this in, and um, and we'll change. Now, Burma's Burma, China's China. But it does give you some hope. I mean, South Africa is another example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The apartheid regime packing it in in 1990. So there are examples in other in other nations where a pragmatic leadership has made the determination that evolution needs to take place, and it can happen in a way that's not bloody, uh, and society flourishes after it. Well, and it seems as if because uh, people do have more of a voice than they used to in China. Uh, and they have talked about pollution, for example, and yeah. the government has been uh, paying attention to that. What are the other major issues that China has to pay attention to in order for this not to boil over in the wrong direction? What There's health care. There's mm. pollution, of course. There's the educational system that some people think needs uh, to be shifted from a road learning at the early stages. Is there anything in corruption which is... Sure, crackdown on corruption, property rights. I mean, you still have um, issues in China where um, buildings are raised without sufficient compensation to the people who are living in those buildings or farms that are getting um, paved over to make roads. And, you know, you've seen recently uh, of some very sad cases of of people who... um, who were trying to defend their their property, defend their space against you know the onslaught of local authorities, um, and now more people know about that than they more would people have know about that, and so there's more demonstration. Social order and social stability is is the is of paramount importance to the to the Communist Party. Harmony, harmony, social harmony, and and they need to provide answers and solutions for issues that you've raised, like pollution, that are now creating social discord. They've realized unless they get a handle on the pollution issue, it will continue to um, exacerbate social unrest. And so they, anything to suppress social unrest, anything to minimize the likelihood that people will take to the streets, they will, they will do. Um, and so you've had the expansion of healthcare, where in China you had traditionally a pay-as-you-go. If you, So long as you can pay, you get healthcare. 
if you can't pay anymore, they'll just literally throw you out onto the street. Mm -hmm. Now there is the emergence of a of a much more widespread social safety net that's that's meant to really ensure all Chinese. We had the richer eastern provinces go first. Now that is extending farther west to the poorer hinterlands of China, so that there is, as part of the you know, the five-year plan, uh, uh, you know, making sure that everyone has some degree of coverage. But I was at the um, World Economic Forum in Dalian, uh, was it last year, and I had the privilege of of hearing Premier Li Keqiang talk, and talking about you know accelerating the pace of economic liberalization and making China more competitive and making it a more um, attractive uh, destination for foreign investment and for foreign companies. And then the irony was, no, no sooner had I heard his speech and I had a face-to-face -face meeting with the Communist Party head of the province of Guangdong, um, where I was there to ask him to help me secure a license for uh, my employer to, to sell insurance in Guangdong province. And I said, look, I want to employ people. I want to create jobs. I want to help contribute to the economy. I want to protect the people of Guangdong. You got to help me. I said, because otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm applying and this application could take months. It could take years. I said, you want, you want my company in your town to do business? And, and Premier Lee's talking about economic liberalization, but the reality is I've got to, I've got to apply. It's going to take forever. How can you help me? Well, he did help me. He connected with the insurance regulator who controls the issuance wow. of licenses. And he was able to accelerate the approval process. So what would have otherwise taken a year took about four to five months. Now, the point remains that as a foreign insurer, I needed to get that license. If I were a domestic player, I, it it's pretty, pretty much happens overnight. You just set up shop. You have a national footprint. Right. As a foreign player, you have to go province by province. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly not a level playing field in my industry, and it won't be for a long time. But it's worth the effort. It has to because it's going to. It's I think the second largest insurance market in the world today. It will probably eclipse the United States at some point. Um, and the penetration gap in China is massive, and Chinese are now realizing the need for insurance. So the demand curve is becoming more vertical. There's a greater appreciation for protecting assets, wealth accumulation and wealth mm -hmm. protection, health and wealth. Um, these now begin to resonate in China you know, more prolifically. So it's making it easier for the industry's value proposition to, to resonate in China than it was 10 years ago. And there are more people with more assets who, who want to save. I mean, there's a, you know, you see thousands of mainland Chinese coming to Hong Kong, buying insurance products, savings products, investment products, essentially exporting capital out of China into Hong Kong where they think it is safer. And the Chinese are trying to curb capital outflows and they put some, some Restriction. fundamental restrictions now on how people can, can do that, which is so that whole market for insurers in Hong Kong is drying up. That was a major honeypot for quite some time. Ah, uh -huh. And you know, insurers in Hong Kong would have agents in China who would lead generate and drive mainland Chinese to Hong Kong to buy their policies in local currency. And so, um, you know, that's, that's now all dried up. This is fascinating to me. So is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is especially important when you think about the, the shift, what's happening between Asia and the West? Anything that you haven't brought up that occurs to you as important? I mean, there's other issues that we deal with are urbanization and, and aging populations. Ah. Um, <clears throat> 
and the implications for society in, in general. And, um, you know, I think that the Asia is aging at a, at a more rapid clip than the West, and it will become a, a bigger societal challenge to tackle that. Especially uh, with the one-child rule that's now no longer in effect, but sure. still has made it. So you see it in Japan, you see it in China, you see it here in Hong Kong. Um, and the implications on productivity, workforce, on immigration, then, um, and on the infrastructure in society to support aging populations, and and the and the social impact of there being fewer people actually of working age, declining birth rates, and an infrastructure that needs to accommodate people that don't move as fast or mm-hmm. you get in and out of cars as quickly, and it's 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 a real issue in Asia. I also think that. Um, the urban sprawls. Go to Jakarta. Go to Manila. Go to Bangkok. You know. Um, you know. Go to. Go to Calcutta. Go to Bom- Bombay. I mean the the sheer um, density of population. The world has become urban. Uh, urban and 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 the pollution and the crowds and. Um, and, and, and the changing way of life in, in, in rural areas as a result, lack of sort of man and woman power in rural areas, farms, farms that are going, you know, without inheritance. And it, it's just changing the makeup of, of, of our world out here. Everyone wants to be in the big city to earn, earn, earn a better living. And, I, you know, I challenge any of our listeners, go to Jakarta. Go from, go, go from the international airport into the center of town. Um, give yourself a while to do that. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. It takes a ton. This is a perfect place to stop, really, although I could go on listening to you for hours because you, your perspective is so valuable. I really want to thank you, Stuart, for participating. Oh, I'm honored to participate. Thanks, Susan. Great. Thanks. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.